Well, good morning. It is good to see you, and I want to welcome you uh, to our service today. My name is John, if you don't know who I am, and I have the privilege of being the youth pastor here at the church. And today I got to share with you uh, probably one of my favorite stories from the Old Testament. Now, if you don't know this, we're currently in a series that we're calling the Book of Eli, which is a series where we're looking at this incredible story of this prophet Elijah, which can be found in First and Second Kings. Now, Elijah was a prophet uh, who lived in the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of King Ahab. And it's important to note uh, that the next few weeks, you're going to keep hearing these names because they are the key players uh, in an epic battle that's going to unfold in our passage and kind of spill over in the next few weeks. But today, uh, we are going to look at this epic smackdown that's going to happen between Elijah, where he goes mano a mano against King Ahab, and ultimately where God goes toe-to-toe uh, with the fake gods of Baal. Now, having grown up in the 1980s and 1990s, when things like boxing and world wrestling were probably at its highest popularity, I have always been fascinated uh, with stories of rivals, even though I'm Mennonite and, and fighting is a much like dancing, right? It's not okay. Um, but I've been fascinated with stories like when Mike Tyson fought Evander Holyfield in the fight called The Sound and the Fury, also known as the Bite Fight. I remember hearing about the famous 1974 fight between Muhammad Ali, where he fought undefeated heavyweight champion George Foreman in an epic battle that they called the Rumble in the Jungle. And so I feel like today, as we look at this sermon, as, as we look at this text, I think it's appropriate that we give it a fight title. And so I thought we would call it the Battle Royale on Mount Carmel. It's a fantastic story. Now, it's really important to note that as we jump into our story today, that one of the things that we have to do is we have to take a few minutes to really set up the story. We have to look at the context. Uh, You see, we need to understand, you know, what has happened and where we are now, because we're going to miss out on just the incredibleness that's found in this text. Our story starts off in 1 Kings uh, chapter uh, 16, verse 29, where we're told that this guy named Ahab inherits the throne of the northern kingdom of Israel. And what we know about King Ahab uh, is he's a wicked dude, okay? A matter of fact, Scripture says that King Ahab uh, did more evil in the eye of the Lord than any other king. He was known as the most wicked king. And so essentially, he's like Drango from the Rocky movies, right? He's this mean, tough dude, and he doesn't care who you are. Like, he just just wants to smack down everyone, and, um, and, and he will do whatever he can to stay on top. Now, the reason why uh, the Bible says that King Ahab did more evil in the sight of the Lord was that together with his wife Jezebel, they together led the northern kingdom of Israel away from the worship of Yahweh. You see, Jezebel was a Canaanite, essentially an enemy of God, and she was the daughter of a Canaanite king. And as daughter of the the king, she was given this title of being the priestess of Baal. Uh, Some scholars actually think that she was the high priestess, meaning that her, her number one job in her life was to promote the worship of Baal and to eliminate any other rival gods. And let me tell you that the two of them together did horrendous things to accomplish this, right? Uh, We're told in in scripture that they destroyed places of worship. They killed the priests. They executed the prophets. Uh, They were violent and vengeful, and they forced people to bow down to Baal, who was known as the god of fertility and the god of weather, specifically rainstorms. 
But our story doesn't end there. We jump forward to uh, 1 Kings chapter 17. We read that there is this contender uh, to King Ahab and he enters the story and his name is Elijah, meaning Yahweh is my God. And and what we're told is that Elijah pronounces judgment on the land and, and against the wicked king. And this is what Elijah says. He says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, There will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. And sure enough, just as as Elijah pronounces this impending judgment, God stays true to that judgment. And we're told that this extreme famine and drought comes across the land. Now, this is a drought that, that wasn't like the heat dome of last summer, right? This was like a drought that kept going on and on. It cracked the ground. It withered anything that lived. It choked out life and there was no relief. And it's in this moment that Elijah becomes public enemy number one. And because of this, we're told that he runs and he hides from the wrath of Ahab and his queen. And and what we're told in the coming passages is that Ahab doesn't give up trying to find this prophet, Elijah. Matter of fact, he's relentless. It's in chapter 18, verse 10. We're told that there was no nation, there was no kingdom where Ahab did not look for Elijah. He essentially puts a price on his head and he hunts him down, searching high and low for this person responsible for this famine. And this is where our text picks up this morning in uh, verse one. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go and show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the land. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab and he, he runs into this guy named Obadiah who, who not only feared uh, the, the Lord God and had roles of responsibility in King Ahab's court. He's kind of like probably, if we were to like say, this is a character that would reflect Elijah, it would be Oscar Schindler from the movie Schindler's List right? Uh, He sees the persecution around him. And so he strategically uses his influence uh, so that he can save some of the priests of Yahweh, right? Our text tells us that he saved a hundred prophets and hid them in a cave. And so Elijah just runs into Obadiah and, and he knows that he has a relationship with the king. And he says, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah's here. You see, folks, the stage is being set here for this epic battle. After three long years of suffering, three long years of famine, three long years of hiding from the enemy of God, right? Uh, Sorry, of hiding from his enemy, God sends Elijah into the ring, right? The announcer is Obadiah. Hey, king, Elijah is here. Let's, Let's get ready to rumble, right? And it's in this time, right, where, where Elijah confronts the king on his wickedness, right? So he puts on the gloves and they get ready to fight. And what we see in our text in verse 17 is that when these two enemies approach each other, they start taking jabs like right off the bat. Listen to what our text says. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? Right, Right off the bat, King Ahab just throws the right hook. He starts blaming Elijah and Elijah is quick to throw one back, right? He's saying, he's saying, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. You got to take responsibility for your sin here. You, your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the false God of Baal. 
And what Elijah is doing is he's reminding King Ahab the words of Exodus 20, verse 3, and Deuteronomy 5, verse 6, which so clearly say, you shall have no other gods other than me. You see, this is a big problem. This is the reason why we're told that there has been drought in the land, but King Ahab doesn't get it, and he doesn't want to take responsibility. And so Elijah continues, and he essentially says, I want you to get everyone. Let's, let's put our gods to the test. I want you to fill the stands. And, and so therefore he sent him and, and he said, gather all of Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people and, uh, of Israel and he gathered the prophets together at this mountain. Now, it's really important to note that Mount Carmel was, was known as this holy mountain. It was, it was long a center of idol worship, and it was one of the reasons why Elijah chooses this mountain range as this place to challenge the priests of this false god, to show the people once and for all who is the one true and real God. And what we're going to discover in our coming passages as we look at it today is that, is that all the idols in the world will never satisfy us or deliver us from the droughts of life. And no matter how much we place our worship in them, they will never accomplish what we hope. And they will only leave us parched in a dry land. And it's for this reason that we need to remember and, and we need to put into place the person who is to be worshiped, which is God of God and King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the one true and living God. So here's the first thing that, that I discovered in our text this morning. And it is this, is that God despises half-hearted idol worship. Uh, listen to our text as it continues in verse 21. Elijah came near to all of the people. The whole crowd was there. And he says to them, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. You see, this is the heart of the message today. And it is in this moment that Elijah goes, he goes head to head with the sinfulness of idol worship. Uh, idolatry is one of the most spoken about issues in all of scripture. And it can be best defined as the worship of idols or the excessive devotion to or the reverence of some person or thing over God. Basically, an idol is anything that replaces your devotion that you have for the one true God. Now, what we also need to remember is that this has been a huge issue for the nation of Israel, right? As we read the collective history of God's people, we see that one of the distinguishing attributes of the Israelites is that they were often half-hearted in their obedience to follow God and his word. Like they had commitment issues. Like think about the Israelites' story in Exodus for a second. The Israelites had just seen God move in this really huge way, right? He led them out of Egypt, out of slavery, and he, he, he gives them 10 commandments. And the first commandment is, have no other gods. I am your God. Look at what I've done for you. And so Moses then goes to Mount Sinai to meet with God. And what did the people do? They fashioned a calf of molded gold, and they substituted that for God. This is the pattern of the Israelites that happens over and over and over again. I mean, Israel kind of reminds me of my high school girlfriend, okay? One moment we're dating, the next we're not. We make up, and then she dumps me again for another guy. Like, this is, this is just commitment issues 101 right here, right? Elijah's like my ex-girlfriend. It was like this tug-of-war of the heart, 
And as we look deeper into Israel's relationship with God, we see that this is the pattern, that they forget God's goodness, that they test God by seeing if they can satisfy their lusts and other things. They played moral hide and seek with God and they served him only when it was convenient and only when they knew they couldn't escape him. I mean, their lives were marked with unfaithfulness and this shouldn't be surprising for us because this is also our problem. John Calvin, I think, said it the best when he said, every one of us, even from his mother's womb, is a master craftsman of idols. And while our idol worship is not golden calves or, or the god Baal, it is in all of our hearts. It is in all of our lives. So like, think about the things that you give yourself to, your, your chase of trying to figure out your identity, your money, your possessions, your job, your, your social status, your, your obsession with social media platforms, technology and devices. Like how many of you watched countless hours of Netflix last night? Go, go thank you, thank you. My, my, this was, that was really awkward for me, right? It's like, I'm the only one. He doesn't know what he's saying, all right? But that's the thing, right? All of us have this, this idol. I think about the effort that we put into our physical appearances, our obsession with sex, your hidden sin of pornography, your idolization of sports, and how good things, even like our families, can become idols to us. Friends, this is sin, and, and God hates it, and he despises it, because your idols are, are essentially a rejection of God himself. Your idols are a rejection of God's rule, of his care, of his authority in your life. In short, your idols are a rebellion of the creature against the creator. And it leads to death and it breaks God's heart. And so what do we have to do? We have to call uh, idol worship as it is. It is sin. And God hates it when we sit on the fence choosing between him and the things of this world. Listen to how our text continues. Uh, Elijah confronts the Israelites and he says, stop sitting on the fence. And our text tells us that the people sat there and they did not answer him, right? It's kind of like if I said, hey, you guys have sin in your life and no one puts your hands up. So I'm thankful that you guys put your hands up, okay? Let's go back to that, right? Now there's two reasons why the Israelites didn't say anything. First off, I think the first reason is because if they stood up against Baal worship, they probably would have been put to death. But I think that there's also a better reason that fits the collective history of Israel. And it's this, is because of this word called spiritual complacency. They simply didn't care who they were worshiping. Here's the thing about idol worship in our lives, right? And, and, and here's, the th here's the thing, right? Is that idol worship actually doesn't shock you and I very much. We're, we're quite used to living in our sin, right? We, we've gotten pretty good at hiding it, uh, of, of saying that we're righteous, but really, you know, there's wickedness in our hearts. And, and what I think I, I could say probably pretty boldly is that we've actually become very dependent on our sin for our happiness, right? Would you guys agree with me on that? Right? We, we, we find happiness in the, in the things of this world. But listen, I need to, I need to let you know that God, God despises half-hearted worship. Let's look at maybe one of the most conv convicting passages uh, in, in all of scripture about half-heartedness, and it's in Revelations 3, 15 to 17, 17 that says, I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot. 
So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. It's that happiness, right? Listen, friends, half-hearted worship doesn't actually get you happiness. It leads to droughts and judgment and death in your lives. And God despises half-heartedness. Check out what Romans 1 verse 18 to 25 says. It says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Right? There's no excuses. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible uh, qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature has been clearly seen. Being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Listen to this. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised, amen. You see, friends, this isn't just the Israelites' problem. It's not just their defect. It's also yours and it is also mine. Bible says that none of us are righteous. No, not one of us. And daily we are faced with this, this decision and choice. Do we, either, do we either worship God with all of our hearts, our souls, our minds, and our strengths? Or do we cave into the worship of false gods who we think offer us life and hope and love, but in, really, in reality they only offer us certain death? A.W. Tozer said that an idol of the mind is as, as offensive to God as the idol of the hand. So that thing in your heart is just as bad as that public sin that that you can see, right? That's what idol worship is. And God hates it because our devotion is to be on him and him alone as the sustainer and creator of all things, as the one who gives the greatest gifts. Here's the second thing that I discover in our passage And it is this, is that when idols fail us, it's often in that moment that we try harder. Let's continue to look at our text. It says, then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord. Am I the only one here who worships God? But Baal prophets are 450 men. So let two bowls be given to us. Let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire on it. And I will prepare the other bull and I'll lay it on the wood and put no fire on it. And you will call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. Now what's happening here is that Elijah is essentially explaining the rules of this fight. Okay, he's, he's explaining the rules of this is how it's gonna go down. You're gonna have the opportunity first. You're gonna have the upper hand. But let's put our gods to the test and let's see which one actually delivers. 
What's going to happen between God and Baal? So they have a showdown, right? The one altar that gets lit up is the one who proves once and for all who the real God is. And, 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 and so that's what they agree to. And because Elijah doesn't want the upper hand, he allows the Baal worshipers to go first. And so we're told they take their bowl, they bring it to the altar, right? And they cry out, oh, Baal, oh, oh our God, answer us. And what we're told is that there was no voice or response. Their God didn't answer. They, he didn't respond. And all they were doing was, was limping around the altar that they had made. Now you need to know that when the Bible talks about limping, it is a sign of deep spiritual injury and an indication of brokenness. It was in this moment that defeat started to set in and they begin to feel spiritually wounded, right? Their God didn't show up. And I want you to imagine for a moment how humiliating this must have been for the prophets of Baal. Because after all, this was their God. This was who they had placed their hope in. This was their deity. Their God was known as the God of fire and they simply had one request. God, would you answer me? Right, Baal, would you answer me? Would you come down and, and light this altar on fire? But all they heard was the sound of silence. And so what does Elijah do? He lets them continue to do their thing, knowing that they're not gonna give up. And so they continue, right? Baal, answer us, come down and fire. And it's after some time that Elijah, you know, he's sitting on the sidelines and he starts to taunt them. Cry louder, Cry louder, people. He is a God, right? For he is a God. He is either musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. You see, friends, Elijah is using one of the oldest tricks in the book called Fighting 101. You smack talk against your competition, get into their heads and distract them. And I love this story because I'm going to be honest with you and say that I'm a junior high kid at heart, right? And so whenever there's potty talk, like I giggle a little bit inside, right? And I want you to hear this again. Is your God relieving himself, right? Is he taking a piss? Is he in an outhouse? Where is your God? Where is he, right? And I just giggle and I think this is awesome. This is great, right? Is your God relieving himself? Now, having seen some, some fights over the years and having been in a few fights when I was a teenager, uh, there's three different reasons why fighters taunt each other. First off, because there is an arrogance about their ability and about who they are, right? They're like, they want to be, you know, puff, puff up the ego a little bit, let's taunt, right? So Elijah, you know, maybe he thought so highly about himself that he's just dishing out the smack talk. Secondly, the, the reason why you taunt someone is because it's a really great way of distracting them uh, from the task at hand. And if I can get into your head, maybe you can get distracted and I'll have the upper hand. But, but, but the, throughout the whole story, we see Elijah never had the upper hand. But here's the, here's the last reason why fighters taunt. Fighters use smack talk because they have a deep confidence in the outcome of the match. And I believe that this is the reason why Elijah so boldly disses Baal, because he knows without a doubt that he's not gonna show up. But what happens in our text after the smack talk is, is actually really alarming. Our text tells us that the Baal worshipers cried louder 
And they began to do something. They, they started to cut themselves with swords and spears until blood was gushing out upon them, right? It was a really disturbing scene. It was almost as if, as, as if this was like their war cry, like they had to lean in more, right? And, and as midday passed, they'd been doing this all day. They, they had raved on until the time of the offering of the blation, but there was no answer. And I want you to hear this. Their God didn't show up. He didn't answer them. He didn't deliver them. He didn't satisfy them. And when desperation sets in, they did not give up. They only cried out louder. They started to mutilate their bodies. They kept trying harder and harder to prove to Elijah that their God was real. Listen, one of the things that I know about life is that often when things fail, I'm forced to try harder. Right? I can't tell you how many times I've been trying to do something in my life and, and it has failed miserably. It could be a renovation at my house or it could be a relational issue in my life. But it's in those moments when life starts to go sideways that frustration starts to set in and I continue very stupidly to do the same thing, only harder, hoping for a different result. Has anyone else ever done this? Please put your hands up. <laughs> Thank you. All right. You see, for the Baal worshipers, they so wanted their God to show up and reveal himself that when he didn't, they turned up the hype a little bit, right? They cut themselves. They cried louder and tried harder and they were met with the same result. And as I thought about this, I thought about the many idols and the gods that we see and worship in our world and how when they don't truly deliver or meet our needs, that often what we do is we do that same approach. Right? We hope, we do the same approach, hoping for a different outcome. Let's for a moment look at some of the idols of the world. Let's firstly look at the idol and the God of sex. Sex is an incredible gift that's been given to us by God. But when our marriages get messy and relational discord happens, we are often drawn to things like pornography or emotional affairs or extramarital affairs. Okay? Thinking that, that this thing will actually help us. And when that emptiness and that pain doesn't go away, what do we do? We continue spiritually limping along, right? Thinking that if we keep doing these things, eventually we find happiness and we find joy, right? And that's, that's the pattern that we do. This is what you and I do. We look at the God of money. Listen, I don't know if you're like me, but I really like money and I love buying things. But here's the thing that I've learned. It doesn't matter what I buy, Eventually, I want more. I'm never satisfied. I never have enough, right? That, that truck will become old and rusted and I'm gonna want a new one. And I think that if I have that new one, I find happiness. Ask Steve. Steve, I'm sorry for buying vehicles from you. Don't let me buy vehicles from you, okay? All right? If I spend more money, maybe that helps me, but it doesn't. Listen, friends, your God is not present in your idols, that feeling of emptiness, that feeling of hopelessness will always linger because you're placing your hope in something that was never meant to satisfy you or to deliver you or to show up for you or to be your place of worship. I think Psalms 135 verse 15 to 18 puts it best when it says this. The gods of the godless nation are mere trinkets made for quick sale in the markets, chiseled mouths that can't talk, painted eyes that can't see, carved ears that can't hear. They are dead wood and cold metal. And those who make and trust them become like them. 
Listen, friends, you can put all of your gods to the test. You can go to the extreme. You can cry out harder, but you're always going to be laboring in vain for something that was never meant to be your place of joy. You can put all of your hope in everything and anything. But if it's not placed in that right place of affection, if it's not placed in God, you will always be in despair. If you put all of your eggs in the basket of, and the gods of sex and money and possessions and wealth and popularity, you will always be left disappointed because those gods won't show up for you. You're, you're gonna continue to chase after them like a, like a dog chases its tail. You work even harder, but there will never be a reward for your worship. The only thing that you will experience and what Isaiah 42 verse 17 promises is that you will utterly be put to shame for your false worship. Shame is the consequence of sin. We see it in, in, in the Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve sinned. And what, what was the thing? They felt shame. Shame is this self-conscious emotion generated by self-reflection and self-evaluation where a person's failures or shortcomings are displayed publicly. It's only a matter of time before the world sees that you've placed your hope in something that has failed you. You see, Baal didn't show up and he couldn't show up and the watching crowd saw the, the sham for what it was and the only thing the Baal worshipers could do is try harder, working to exhaustion to the point of deep and utter brokenness as they cut themselves. This would eventually lead to their physical deaths as they bled out. And the question that I thought was, how far can we go doing the same thing, hoping for a different result? Do we try harder or do we surrender to the reality that our gods that we have placed, those idols that we have in our lives, will never satisfy us or show up for us? Here's the last thing that our text is teaching us. Idols will always fail you, but God won't. As our passage continues, Elijah sees the defeat of the prophets of Baal. Here they'd spent their day crying out to God. And so when no spark happens, Elijah turns to the crowd and he says, it's my turn. Listen to our text. Elijah says, come near to me. It's almost as if he's inviting the watching crowd into this upcoming holy moment where God shows up. And what we're told is that Elijah goes to the ground and he starts to repair the, the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. You see, at, at one point, the northern Israel, uh, nation of Israel, they worshiped Yahweh. But when King Ahab established Baal worship as the state's religion, anything and everything associated with other deities was torn down as a symbol that this God has no place in the land. And so Elijah begins to take these 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of, of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name, right? We have to remember that this is God's chosen people. He is their God and this is his and their land. And with the stones, Elijah builds this altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed, which is about 3.5 gallons. And he put the wood in order and he cut the bowl in pieces. He laid it on the wood. And then listen to this. He said, fill four jars, these big barrels, fill it with water, pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. 
Now, I don't know about you, but there's two things that, that I know. Firstly, making a fire with wet wood is like nearly impossible, okay? A few weeks ago, I was camping in Hope and it rained one night and it took me like 30 minutes the next day to get a fire going. And let me tell you, I used every arsenal that I had, okay? I used like five newspapers because I, my kid delivers newspapers, so there's always extra somehow. I used gas. I resorted to using bug spray and a lighter because I thought that was cool, right? It was awesome, but I couldn't start this fire. And all I got was smoke inhalation and a bruised eagle because my brother-in-law was watching me and I had said, hey, I could start this fire. He goes, no, you can't, okay? But the second thing that I know is this, is that when the ground is dry and cracked, when you pour water on it, it, immediate, it immediately gets sucked up by the dry ground. And you can't tell that you actually poured water on it. So as soon as they would have poured water on the altar, it would have disappeared immediately because the ground hadn't seen water for three long years. And so Elijah then said to the people, do this a second time, okay? And so they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did. And and we're told that water ran around the altar and it filled the trench also with water. So we need to understand, this is not a mildly dry altar. This is a sopping wet, soaking wet altar that would give Elijah, again, no upper hand to the Baal worshipers. But this was also done for another reason, right? If God was to show up and the altar would light, they could have simply just turned to Elijah and accused him of of having a trick up his sleeve. Like maybe he just hid a coal, you know, and then just dropped it and then like, fire, hey, right? But that's not what he did. Right? Elijah soaks the altar and it was yet again him saying, the odds are stacked against me. And listen to this. Elijah the prophet came near and he prays this simple prayer. Oh Lord, God of Abraham, of Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, oh Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Notice the difference in Elijah's posture. Notice the difference in his approach. He humbly prays. And we're told that as he does this, the fire of the Lord falls and consumes the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, like everything was ignited. It licked up all the water that was in the trench. This was a hot fire. And when all the people saw it, it says that they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Listen, I love this part of the story because here Elijah simply prayed. Notice it didn't take him all day. Notice he didn't have to cut himself. He didn't have to try harder. He simply prays and God shows up and saves the day. And, and, and he, as he said he would, and he, he knocks out King Ahab and knocks out the Baal worshipers for what it is, a fake. Now, if you don't know this in boxing, there's three different ways in which you can beat your competition. The first is by scoring the highest points, right? So the more landed punches that you have, uh, the higher points you're gonna get, and the more, the more punches, the more points you receive, right? That's uh, the opposite of golf, okay? 
The second way to beat out a competition is what officials call a TKO, which is the technical knockout. This is where like a boxer punches someone and they just like are dizzy and so it's like probably not best to fight because they're just punching in the air. So the, like the referee jumps in between the two and declares the other guy winner. But the third way of winning is called a KO, which stands for a knockout which is the moment when one boxer has been knocked out and is unable to rise uh, and resume boxing within a specific time. Well, friends, this is the KO moment for the Baal worshipers. Elijah reestablishes an altar. He prays this prayer of faith and God shows up and he makes himself known and the sopping wet altars all of a sudden consume with fire. Notice again the difference. Baal worshipers did this all day long with nothing. And Elijah prayed. He didn't plead or scream. He didn't have to do a cultic dance. He didn't cut himself. He humbly, in faith, believed that God would provide and fire fell from heaven, igniting the altar. Right? And this is, this is the opposite of Baal worship. Baal was supposedly the god of lightning, the god of fire. So if there was anyone who could have shown up, wouldn't it be that god? But Baal can't show up. And he won't show up because he's not a real God. He's not worth putting your time into. Listen, God shows up through fire and hearts are turned. And when people saw and realized who Yahweh was and the power that he had against the God of Baal, they fell and they said, the Lord, he is God. Fire is an indication of the true presence of God. And fire represents God hearing the prayers of his people. Fire represents God neutering Baal and making him like worthless. Listen, friends, many of you are in seasons of drought in your lives. Many of your lives are cracked and wounded and you're living in this parched land. And you've tried the same thing with the same results over and over and over again. And you're at the point of exhaustion, but you just feel like you need to try harder. But listen, there's something so powerful that happens when we begin to tear down the idols of our lives and respond to God in reestablishing our faith in him. And when we do that, God shows up and makes himself known. I want you to listen to the words found in Deuteronomy 12, uh, verse 2. Uh, it says, Surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispose serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. You shall seek the place that the Lord, your God, will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. And there you shall go. And there you will bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, and, and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there... You shall eat before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. And I want you to notice, right, the difference of results here. Worshiping false gods leads to your life becoming dry. But worshiping the one true God results in the feasting with the Lord. It leads to intimacy and beauty and joy. It leads to rejoicing and God pouring out his blessing and favor on you. But here's the thing, folks. It's gonna require you to do something. 
You need to kill your sin and knock down your idols because it's only a matter of time before you go back to them. Listen, as our text comes to a close, Elijah has to do two things. First off, he has to do something that seems really extreme. Our text says that he sees the prophets of Baal saying, let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon, and he slaughtered them there. Now, some of us may be thinking, this is so unfair. This is unjust. But listen to the instruction of Deuteronomy 13, verse 5, where it says, but the prophet or the dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, You know, as I was thinking about this uh, and thinking about our story, I thought about this phrase that goes like this, that you have to kill your sin before your sin kills you. You see, Elijah knows that unless he does something extreme, that the prophets would again arise, giving signs and wonders, and they would say again to the Israelites, let us go after other gods, because this is the pattern. Let's go to these other gods that you don't know and let us serve them. And so what does Elijah need to do? He, he knows that for the Israelites to have life, that they would once and for all have to kill the idol of sin in their life. And it's similar to this idea that if you have aggressive cancer, that you go see a doctor and that doctor doesn't just take out a few of the cells that are in your body, patch you up and send you on your way. No, rather, when you have aggressive cancer, you get cut open and that cancer is removed. And then you do aggressive treatment like chemo and radiation because you don't want that cancer to come back because if it does, it could kill you, right? So you have to eradicate it. You have to fight against it. You have to put it to death once and for all. And listen, there is some application for each one of us here as we fight the battle of idol worship in our lives. First off, I want to encourage you to finally um, confront the idols of your lives. Call it what it is. Elijah waited three years to confront King Ahab and tackle the idol worship that was killing God's people. And we must also confront our sin and we must boldly deal with it because if we say we have no sin and if we persist in our sin, it's only a matter of time before we experience the death of our souls. As we compare our idols to God, we need to ask the question, does this idol stand up against God? Does this sin make me work harder in my life? Do I eventually have to, like, will it fail me? These are the questions that we have to ask as we process the things that we do. And each one of us has to evaluate the things that we give ourselves to and call them for what they are. And we need to flee from them because idolatry always brings destruction. Secondly, I want to encourage you to reestablish your worship for the one true God. Listen, many of us have been worshiping false idols and gods in our lives. And as we look around, we're just seeing the dry, dusty wasteland where we've wandered. And you're standing there wondering, why is this happening to me? Meanwhile, not taking responsibility for it. And like King Ahab, you're blaming others for the stuff that goes sideways in your life. Listen, God wants you, he he wants you. He wants your whole being. He wants your soul and your mind and your strength. And it's gonna require this conscious choice in daily choosing to rebuild the broken altar of worship to the one true God in your life. You must take the stones and, and say, this is the God who I worship. Thirdly, I want to encourage you to call upon the Lord and confess your sin because he is faithful and just to forgive you. 
Elijah has this audacious faith. He believed in who God is. And, and, and that's what allowed him to stand in front of the king and in front of hundreds of Baal worshipers to put God to the test. And as I thought about Elijah's prayer, I was struck with this question. When was the last time that I called upon the Lord? When was the last time I humbly approached the throne of God, asking for his presence to light the fire of my life and my heart? And I want to encourage you today, as you see the weight and the worthlessness of your idols, to turn back to God and to stay there by placing your hope and your trust confidently in him. And that starts when we confess our sins and say, Lord, I have placed other idols and gods before you. And I repent of that, which is I turn away from that and I, I, I look to God where, where I was supposed to be looking the whole time. Lastly, I want to re remind you that God has shown up before and he will show up again. One of the greatest stories about God showing up in, in, in the Bible is the story of the Gospels, which is where God steps into the utter mess of our sin and idols and shows us that he alone is the only one who can save and he is alone is the only one worth following. You see, in Jesus, God saved us from the consequences of our sin and idol worship, which is death and brokenness. And listen, friends, I would fail you as one of your pastors today if I didn't remind you how much God loves you, how much he loves you and cares for you and wants to see healing in your life. He, he wants to show up for you in the biggest droughts of your life. God wants to get your attention like he's trying to get King Ahab's and the Israelites. And God came in the form of Jesus Christ and he lived the life we should have lived and he died the death we should have died in our place. And he, he did this to knock down the altars of Baal in our lives and to show us that he alone is worthy to be followed because he laid down his life for you. John Piper said that ultimately Jesus must become more beautiful to our imagination and more attractive to our hearts than the idols that we're currently following because he's the only God who can replace our counterfeit gods with. Folks, our story makes it so clear that God shows up and beats the idols of the world and he accomplishes only what God can, ultimately winning people's hearts and turning them back to him. God wants to end the spiritual droughts of your soul and to flood them with a pouring, refreshing rain. Fire's come, but rain hasn't yet. But listen to how our text ends. One last miracle. A drought had set in for three long years, but King Ahab needed a personal lesson, a, a personal spanking from God a little bit, right? It's like, you were wrong here. And so King Ahab's eating, and Elijah's sitting on this mountain. He turns to his servant and says, hey, go look. Is rain coming? Is rain coming? He says this seven times. And the man comes back and says, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea and the heavens grew black and the clouds and the wind roared and eventually there was a great rain. You see, only the Lord can open the heavens, the storehouse of his bounty, and he will send rain on your land in seasons to bless you. Listen, folks, God is stronger and better than Baal. And some of you have sat in your drought for far too long, and I want to encourage you. Look to God. Look to Jesus and keep searching for the cloud promised by God that would bring about refreshing and renewing over your land and over your souls. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. Uh, God, I am convicted of the idols and the things that I have in my life that have taken devotion over you, Lord. Uh, and so I will be the first to say that I needed this message. Uh, and I will be for the first to say that I have wandered so long in a parched land and Lord, that I need you. And so I pray for my friends here. I pray that they would also recognize that. And today they would deal with you. They would take care of business, Lord, as they reestablish the altar of worship in their, their lives as they look to you and you alone, as they give up their sins, Lord, Lord, would you save us from them because you have offered us the, the great abundant life, not death. You have shown up and you've shown up in miraculous ways, Lord. And all we can say is you are God, you are God. And so I pray that your spirit would work and move and that those who needed to be convicted this morning would be convicted to turn from their sin and to place their hope and their life and their love in you and you alone. We pray this in your name. And everyone said, amen.